0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin
1: Bratt.
0: Hello and welcome to today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Bratt. You know, when things don't go as planned, when a child has got, oh, say, an unanticipated difference in the way they think or feel or behave... Parents often struggle to deal with their own resistance and their fears and their disappointments and sometimes even their embarrassment and shame over what they see as comparisons to other typical family experiences. A lot of pediatricians and mental health professionals and expert resources address children's learning or behavior problems, but they rarely explain to the parents themselves what they are going to go through emotionally when they hear that their perfect ideal child isn't what they expected. When things get tough, how can parents remain present and supportive for their atypical child? Now, the word atypical, at least the way that we're using it here, is a term that was coined by my guest for this part of today's show. And she uses the word atypical to refer to a child who doesn't conform to the usual expectations. Now, that could be because of a learning disorder or a behavioral or psychological issue or perhaps a medical problem or some other condition. What makes my guest's approach different is that rather than focus exclusively on the child's experience and need, she believes, and there's some science to back her up, that the very best way to support a child's development is to encourage and support the parent's understanding, needs, and acceptance. We'll start in when we get back.
2: Come on, smile. Oh, honey, he's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. Yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. Or maybe he's teething. Maybe it's just a phase. Maybe he has autism, and we can definitely do something to help.
1: Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brant, and my guest for this part of today's show is Rita Eichenstein, who's the author of Not What I Expected, Help and Hope for Parents of Atypical Children. Rita, thanks for joining us.
2: It's a pleasure.
0: Why don't you start with a definition of atypical, the way that you're using it?
2: Well, the way I'm using atypical kids, these are the kids who are showing differences in their development And this can range from anything having a specific diagnosis like ADHD, autism, dyslexia, learning disability, uh, developmental delay, or a medical illness. But it can also include children who are quirky, unusual, and don't really have a diagnosis, but they are difficult and difficult to raise and different.
0: But that, that's kind of broad, though, don't you think? I mean, for parents especially, because, well, I, I guess what I'm saying. Is, is, is atypical now a diagnosis?
2: Atypical is not a diagnosis. It's actually a term that I coined because I am a pediatric neuropsychologist, and parents come to me to give their children assessments, and if their child meets criteria for specific diagnoses, well, then I will offer that to them. But what I found in my career is that many children do not meet criteria for a diagnosis. The diagnostic spectrum that we currently have is sort of limiting. I mean, there's, there's just many types of children, and it's really hard to find labels for all of them. But parents Who are struggling with kids who don't fit into any category will know exactly what I mean when their child is perhaps even gifted but atypical. So they could be gifted with social difficulties Mm -hmm. or not quite on the autism spectrum but definitely socially delayed or they do have a specific learning disability which has, which sounds simple but has so many ramifications for their outside world and how they relate to others and how the parents um, help them.
0: Right. Now, doesn't having a diagnosis make it a little bit easier for parents to get services from schools or from the county or any kind of taxpayer-provided stuff, whereas not having a diagnosis would mean that everything's on their nickel?
2: Yeah, it, it does make it easier. I mean, and easy is a funny word because when a parent does find that their child gets a diagnosis, there's nothing easy about that. It's emotionally crushing, um, sometimes emotionally validating also. But um, I guess the ease part is that, yes, your child in some cases will qualify for um, specific services, either through regional center or through the public school. But unfortunately... Sometimes those services are limited, and sometimes the services are insufficient, um, and sometimes they just don't cover everything of what I see that this child needs.
0: You know, One of the points that you make throughout the book, I think, was really interesting, which is that parents need to kind of get through their own emotional response to this, and that that's going to provide a lot of the groundwork for the way that they're going to interact with their children. Talk about that a little bit, the, how the parent's response is so important.
2: Absolutely. You know, we know that one of the big predictors of a person's mental well-being as they grow up is the attachment, the quality of attachment that they had with their parent. But if you turn that on their head and look at how are the parents doing and what do they bring to the table in terms of raising the child, we find that parents who have children who are atypical are worn out, frightened, um, sometimes at the end of their rope, and go through a whole emotional process that hasn't been recognized and understood uh, in the community of both parents as well as professionals who work with parents And it's critically important that parents understand that they are not alone and that their emotions are very important to the process of child-rearing. And these emotions are understood, and I recognize different phases that they can find themselves going through in terms of learning about their child and learning about the different diagnoses that their children can receive. And their feelings are important. And nurturing yourself as a parent is critical to nurturing your child. It's equivalent to going on a journey with a car that's gas tank is on empty. You just don't Mm. do that. In fact, when you leave on a journey, you check your gas tank. You check your tires for air. Because no one would launch out on a long journey with a car that's low on fuel and low on air in their tires, and yet, Parents routinely do that every day when they wake up and putting their child first, which is what we are biologically primed to do, is put our children first. And yet, if you don't take care of yourself and understand your own emotions and the emotions of your husband, wife, or partner, Mm -hmm. or people involved with the child, then it makes it that much more difficult to take this emotional journey of raising an atypical child.
0: Sure. And it seems like one of the most important ways of understanding the emotions, or maybe a different way of, of looking at it, is to let go of the idea you had in your mind of the perfect child. I mean, you know, the, what you, the first thing we do, you have a baby, you want to count the toes and, and fingers and make sure everything looks okay, and, and we assume that this is going to be the, the next president of the United States.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, it, we, are, we are wired to have that optimism. Um, we are wired to have that expectation, that optimism, and that wish for the most wonderful child that ever existed. And our hormones help us, too, because, you know, parents are pumped with tons of neurotransmitters that help bring along that optimism and that rosy glow and, and the feelings of incredible, not just joy, but you see your child in a different light than you see other children. And that is a survival mechanism that our, that our species has. and But what happens when there's a slow dawning of a discovery that this is not what I expected? That the child that they've expected and hoped for and thinks is the most marvelous thing in the world, in fact, is a child that is atypical in some way, that maybe has a disability or a medical illness or on the autism spectrum. It is a crushing, crushing uh, Mm -hmm. blow. It can be. You know, I want to get back
0: to to the definition of atypical, just for just for a sec, because I'm kind of wondering as you're talking and as I'm thinking about all of the diagnosed children and the not diagnosed children who have different different types of of situations. Do you think that there are overall more atypical kids if you add them all up than there are typical kids?
2: Well, you just asked a very good question, and I happen to think that yes, I think that what unites us is our diversity that humans are unique in that we're so different and that we're learning to tolerate differences in each other and among ourselves and that children as a rule are um, unique each child is unique each child comes to the table with their unique set of gifts and limitations and things that they struggle with but the majority of kids still fit into a general paradigm where they can be in a class, uh, let's say, and meet typical expectations and not get too far out of the realm. Um, granted, all children are difficult to raise. At some point, they will hit a snag. That is the, uh, the fate of the human development But for the most part, that really the majority are not, I don't want to say typical, but the majority can meet typical expectations. But it's very hard to get statistics on this, but I'm estimating that at least 20% of kids have some difference that make it a little more difficult for them to fit in with the norm.
0: That's a big chunk of kids, 20%.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, when you look at the close percentages, um, everything seems to be one in five. So um, (laughs) just, you know, learning disability, one in five. ADHD is actually one in
0: uh, four, I think. I'm talking with Dr. Rita Eichenstein, who's the author of Not What I Expected, Help and Hope for Parents of Atypical Children. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll keep talking to Dr. Eichenstein. I'm Armin Brock. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Dr. Rita Eichenstein, who's the author of Not What I Expected, Help and Hope for Parents of Atypical Children, and want to just keep moving along about, we were just talking about how one in five kids, you feel roughly, is is atypical, and that's it's not a majority. I was kind of thinking, I was wondering whether it was a overall a majority and whether the people who think they're typical are not really typical, but one in five is still still a pretty big chunk. And how do you get parents through the initial bump in the road of, whoa, there's something wrong here or something different here?
2: Right. And so by the time parents come to me, they come from a variety of of ways. Either there's a parent who knows in their heart, in their gut, that something is different about their kid, but they can't figure out what it is um they've talked to their pediatrician and their pediatrician has said just give them a little more time they've talked to the teacher in school and the teacher said no they're doing fine and they've talked to their spouse and their spouse says oh you know you're just making a big deal of things and um so some of those parents come to me self-referred other parents are on the other side of that where they don't see that anything is the problem And it's the school or the doctor that says to them, you know, there is something different about your child, and I think you need to have him or her checked out. Um, And that can come as quite a shock to parents. Um, And so helping them understand that we're not just going to look at what's wrong with their child, But what's right with their child and what are the strengths that their child is bringing to the situation but more importantly why does it look like their child is struggling right now what is the situation in which their child is struggling and how can I help shed more light on that particular um, disorder for them but you know I found that after a while of being in practice and doing this that it wasn't really just about the child. I would look at the parents' faces, and I would see so many feelings that just weren't being addressed. And I realized that people who specialize in working with children don't, you know, whether you're in psychology school or education or medicine and you decide you're going to devote yourself to children, um, we don't get much training about parenting or parents at all and what parents might be going through and i started to do some research because i wanted to help parents move through these landmines and these speed bumps yeah. of emotionally yeah. coping with oh my god my child is learning disabled or my child is on the spectrum or my child has adhd what does that mean but beyond what does it mean for the child it's how are they coping with this Right, and, and you you talk
0: I, about it kind of as I guess you're relying a little bit on the the stages of grief from Elizabeth Kubler Ross, and not that there's anything necessarily in common between having a diagnosis or at least discovering that your child is atypical and a death, but there there is something in the progression. There's the certain denial in the beginning, and then there's there can be anger, and then there's depression. Talk about the the, the progression that people tend to go through, although the steps can be out of order.
2: Yes, absolutely, and I really, you know, the term grief is is so um, misleading. Obviously, parents adore their children, and they're thrilled with their children, and so it's not really a grieving stage. It's more of a traumatic progression through different phases of realization and the unanticipated byproduct of the kinds of feelings that you're going to have. And by the way, it's not just the specific individual parents that feel this when a child is atypical it becomes an atypical family so there's reverberations of feelings in the whole family Um, and so the initial phase is of course denial it's akin to if someone steps on your toe hard in the supermarket you're going to initially freeze and say did that just happen You know, like a deer in headlights. That's the phase I call it. It's a deer in headlights phase. Like, what? And you shut down. And what's interesting in the denial phase is that you lose your capacity for language. And so a lot of times when parents are in the pediatrician's office and the pediatrician is talking to them, the parents later think, well, why didn't I ask him this, and why didn't I say this to her? And the reason is that in that initial phase, your language function is shut down and your reasoning is shut down, and you just become sort of numb. And moving out of that numbness, back to the analogy of someone stepping on your toe in the supermarket, Mm -hmm. well, what happens when you unfreeze yourself? Your initial reaction is anger, like, hey, cut that out. And so anger seeks a target. And whether it's not rational, for sure, but, and you can't be angry at a diagnosis. So parents tend to look for someone to blame, hmm. either their spouse or, unfortunately, sometimes their child or the school district or the doctor. Why didn't they find it sooner? or there's many in my book I talk about all the different people and oh, concepts yeah. you can blame you can blame the environment <laughs> for too many toxins you know
0: yeah so what are you going to do about this i guess is i want you to take us through how parents are supposed to respond and of course because there are so many different types of atypical it's going to be a different thing for everybody but can you take us through the basic progression of how to respond and how to move forward from the time that you you get this realization that you have an atypical child.
2: Right. So um, there are these phases of emotions that parents go through, and if you're a parent with a child who is atypical, the first step that I would urge you to go through is find out more. You know, sometimes parents call me and say, I've been told not to get an assessment because you're going to hear information that you don't want to know, and so we're, we're, we'd are we're rather not do that. And that's exactly what not to do because knowledge is power, and this generation of parents is an information age. They want to know as much as possible, and it's the right thing to do. So move, moving out of denial includes finding out. And if you have a denying spouse or partner or mother-in-law or grandparent, help them move out of denial. Educate yourself. Find out. Even if your child doesn't have a diagnosis, there are for sure information and self-help groups and organizations that are designed just for your particular child, I guarantee. And finding those groups will help you move through that denial phase. Um, anger is particularly pernicious and, um, and can cause a lot of damage and destruction in the house. Um, and it is on the parent who is not the angry parent to realize and stop the angry parent because under anger very often is fear of losing control or you feel you have lost control, and you're trying to pull it back, and you're really, really upset that something is, you know, unanticipated with your child. And so in the book, I give um, some uh, techniques to pull back on the anger and how to hold off. And it's good for all parents because, you know, all parents – get irrationally angry at their child. You know, it's 9 o'clock at night and they haven't done their homework yet. Woo, total surge, total anger surge. And so I describe how to pull yourself back and really become aware. Um, And then there's the bargaining phase and the depression phase. But the most important thing I want parents to know is that you will get to a place of active acceptance, that your child will take you through this journey and to have faith that this is going to work out. It's going to work out. It never works out how you think it works, and that's true for everything in life. But if you work it and work yourself and become mindful of your own feelings and learn to nurture yourself, and I talk about how to develop a self-care menu for parents that is essential in taking care of the child with so many different needs, that you get to a place where you become more compassionate, more open. You drop those expectations, and you're able to embrace differences in a way that allows these children to grow up and really deliver their gifts to the world. And I want to say that this world needs all kinds of minds some of the greatest inventions and technologies and innovations have come from people who looked atypical when they were children. I don't care what they were diagnosed with when they were children. Kids grow up, and if they have loving, accepting parents and a very strong attachment to their parents, and their parents are cheerleading for them and having faith in them, they can come and bring their gifts to the world. Uh,
0: right? Dr. Rita is the author of Not What I Expected, Help and Hopeful Parents of Atypical Children. Dr. Eichenstein, thanks for joining us, great to have you.
2: It was a pleasure, thank you.
0: Welcome back to Positive Parenting, I'm Armin Brott. I want to jump right into today's Ask Mr. Dad segment, because it deals with something that I think all of us do, and probably none of us really should, but we don't even think about it. Dear Mr. Dad, my wife and I have a four-year-old daughter who always seems to be in motion. She's not terribly good at following directions. A few weeks ago, we were out shopping at the mall, and she was running around all over the place. She wasn't really causing too much trouble, but it was pretty crowded, and my wife was getting frustrated. Finally, she grabbed her and said, if you don't stop that running around, we are going to go home and leave you right here. I think it's a bad idea to make threats like that, that you have no intention of carrying out. She says that she was just trying to get her attention. I hate to put you in the middle, but which one of us is right? In two words, you are. You'd be amazed at how often I get this question and how important it is. One of the major jobs of childhood is to test boundaries, just Think of your child as a research scientist who turns every rule into a hypothesis. Hmm, she says, the laws of physics, in other words, mom and dad, say that I'm not allowed to do that, but I wonder what would happen if I did. The only way for any self-respecting scientist can test the hypothesis is to break the rule and see what happens. If, like the laws of physics, the threatened consequences actually materialize, the boundaries you set will make her feel safe. Plus, she'll feel secure knowing that when you give her a warning of any kind, if, then, she'd better listen up. Of course, she'll still test your limits, as any good researcher would. That's her job. But be careful. Too many boundaries may make her feel so trapped that the only way out is to test as many boundaries as possible. If you're not consistent in enforcing the rules, your threats may be successful in the short run. In other words, she'll stop running around in the store for a couple of minutes. But long term, she'll learn that it's okay to ignore you. How many times have you given a last warning and then followed up with another last warning and maybe one or two more? Eventually, your child may come to see your warnings as suggestions or invitations Just think of all the completely crazy things we tell our kids. Stop shooting Nerf guns in the house because you'll put somebody's eyes out. Or eating too many carrots will turn your skin orange. Or swallowing cherry pits will make a tree grow in your stomach. If you do A, B, or C, you'll fall down and break your neck. If you do D, E, or F, I'll take away your dessert for the rest of your life. You know, that kind of thing. We just do it over and over again. Your daughter knows perfectly well that you're not going to abandon her in the store that a tree is not really going to grow in her stomach and that you really won't take away her dessert for any more than a day or two and that pretty much nothing you say turns out to be true. The lack of consequences just makes whatever it is you're trying to keep her from doing sound that much more attractive. If you and your wife really want your child to start paying more attention to you, you need to give clear, concise, consistent messages followed up immediately by logical consequences. For example, she's drawing on the walls with crayon you take away the crayons for a week in other words the consequence should have something directly to do with the behavior you're trying to stop if you've got a question or a comment please do send it over you can reach us through the website mrdad.com you can also follow us on twitter at mr and you can follow us on facebook as well facebook.com slash MisterDad. We'll be back next week with another Parents at Place segment or an Ask Mr. Dad segment, depending on which week it is. Until then, I'm Armin Brott. But don't go anywhere quite yet because there's a lot more positive parenting right ahead. More with Mr. Dad. Armin Brott after this from the MrDad.com radio network.
1: Hey,
2: there he is. How's it going? Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting
0: with Armin Bratt from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. This is the second half of the show. I'm Armin Brant. Just think of all the comments that we make to our kids. Things like, just be yourself. If you believe it, you can achieve it. It will all be worth it in the end. Those comments may sound completely profound to well-meaning parents like us, but to a child with a real-life problem, pretty meaningless. At the other end of the spectrum, telling kids exactly what to do in every situation doesn't leave them any room to think for themselves. So if abstract comments... And rigid, prescriptive advice both fail to instruct or inspire or motivate kids. What does work? In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Paul Smith, who has an answer to exactly that question. Based on his extensive research into storytelling, Smith is going to show us the power of a great personal story and how it can be used to reach and teach children. And the way that happens is by showing the hero struggling and succeeding in a way that's interesting and meaningful to them. This interview is going to be a little bit different than some of the others that we've done in that I'm going to encourage Paul to just tell us a lot of stories, and he's going to do that. Some of them are uplifting, and some are humorous, some are heartbreaking, and all of them are deeply touching. But most importantly, they are actually meaningful. So settle in and get ready to listen to some really terrific stories. We'll jump in when Positive Parenting continues right after this. This is Mario Andretti. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, And my guest for this part of today's show is Paul Smith, who's the author of Parenting with a Story, Real-Life Lessons in Character for Parents and Children to Share. Paul, thanks for joining us.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. You
0: know, this book is a collection of stories, but they're stories with a message. And they're not deliberately stories with a message. They're actually real-life stories of things that happened. And, and, uh, you know, we talk about that in writing classes, and you talk, about the, you talk about that in other situations where it's much more effective to give somebody an example of something that actually happened rather than try to say you should be honest, you shouldn't steal, you should take the initiative, you should apply for jobs you don't think you can get, you know, that that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, in fact, I, I think that's both. I, I think they're, they're both, yes, they're stories, and yes, they're true stories, but I, I think they're also deliberate um, in that uh, I, I would I would encourage you to use them in a deliberate fashion, as opposed to just telling somebody a story to entertain them. You know, these, these stories were chosen out of the literally um, nearly a thousand stories I collected throughout my interviews because they did have such a um, a clear message in them that a, a significant life lesson or character lesson could be drawn. So, so they they were chosen deliberately, and I think you should use them deliberately but yes they are stories and i just think we we learn better from stories than we do from
0: yeah uh, now you, you're the author of, of of another book on stories called lead with a story i'm just curious how you did the research for this did you say to people look i'm doing another thing on stories and let's talk about ambition have you got a story about ambition or h- how did you elicit the stories
1: yeah that's a great question because the the questions that I started answering, asking at the beginning of the research for the book, didn't work at all. I mean, I, I I tried kind of what you just said. I asked people to tell me their best stories, and I very quickly got nowhere. And what what I learned was that um, people don't think of um, of the most meaningful, and growthful, and insightful moments in their life as stories. They think of them as meaningful, memorable, insightful moments in their life. They don't become a story until they they're by somebody else so asking people to tell me a story really didn't work at all i had to ask them you know tell me about a time in your life when you learned a very important but completely unexpected lesson or what's the biggest mistake you've ever made and why or or describe a vivid memory you had as a child where, where you felt terrible about how you made somebody else feel or, so i had to ask specific questions to get at those hmm. those meaningful life moments and a story would emerge but yeah when i asked for stories yeah, that that didn't work at all
0: well, let's have you tell us some stories as we go through this. I think one of the ones that appealed to me, actually, there was kind of a, a series of these things. There was one on courage, on self-reliance, on integrity, uh, that kind of came back to this one little th- quote from Wayne Gretzky, the hockey player, uh, at least it's attributed to him, where he said something along the lines of, you miss every shot you don't take. And I just thought that was so insightful and it's you know a kind of i guess poetry the, the poetry version of a story i mean it's just concise it's short it basically says if you don't try anything you'll never get anywhere mm-hmm. and i want you to tell us uh, one of the stories from uh, from courage about that that particular idea
1: is there one in particular you have in mind what well you think of there that?
0: there was one about the girl the high school girl who applied for an internship that she shouldn't have got or that she, that she wasn't qualified for. There was, it was open only for college students, and people were discouraging her, and she ended up applying for it and got it.
1: Yeah, so this, this was in uh, New York, um, and, she, uh, and, and you're right, she was a high school, uh, very bright high school girl, um, and she wanted this internship at a, uh, it was a medical, in, in the medical field, um, but her parents and a number of other people, adults and her friends told her, you know, that the thing is listed for college students only. Um, you'll you'll never get it um, but she was determined to, to at least try so she applied she wrote this l- long essay about why she was so passionate about getting the job and um, just uh, really did her all to get this job and it turns out she did get it and she was super excited and she was began the job and was working a few weeks into it and ended up overhearing some two other people at that uh, company talking when they didn't know she was around to listen and they were talking about her and essentially arguing about why she got the job. And and kind of what one of them said was, yeah, she really wasn't that qualified for the job. And the other one said, well, yeah, but she was the only one that applied. So, you know, and and imagine she's like hiding behind the, you know, the beakers in the lab there listening to this conversation. And it became painfully clear to her that uh, all of her family and friends were right. She wasn't qualified for the job. But – they were also wrong in that she did get the job, and it, just, it taught her a lesson about you know, half of winning is just showing up. That's another famous quote by somebody else who, whose name escapes me right now.
0: Woody Allen, I think.
1: But it's just showing up you know, is really half the battle, and so that, that was her character lesson from this is don't let people tell you just because you're not qualified or not the best qualified not to try because there are all kinds of things in life that, that go un driven for, and if I've, I've probably made up a word there as well, but you, um, she learned that lesson, and she's tried it a number of other times in her life, and she's, she's gone for, for bigger and better things than she ever thought herself possible uh, to, to achieve, and she's done them, and, and some of the time, it turns out, because nobody else wanted it, for whatever reason.
0: Which doesn't necessarily make it any less valuable. The fact it that wasn't it to
1: her. It was highly valuable, because she right. ended up getting into a great medical school as a result of that you know, early experience you know, in, in a lab, so yeah, yeah, absolutely valuable to her. Not sure why nobody else wanted the job. Maybe they didn't even know about it.
0: Now, how about something about grit and persistence?
1: Yeah, so um, there there are a, a, a number. Um, one of them that uh, is kind of near and dear to me because it's somebody that uh, that, that lives you're not too far from me here. Um, a young woman who um, learned to learn gymnastics as a child, and one of the first moves that you think of when you think of gymnastics is called a kip, and, it's, and uh, you won't recognize the name, but you'd know it if you saw it. It's that move oh, yeah. that they use on the, the uh, uneven bars, and it's that one where they jump up, grab the high bar, turn themselves upside down, and they're hanging upside down under the bar, and then in what to me looks like a complete disregard for the laws of physics, they end <laughs> up flipping themselves upright to where <laughs> they're now on top of the bar with their legs dangling below. And it's right. a very, very difficult move to learn. In fact, it takes sometimes years to learn. And this young woman, um, named Emma, she uh, she was about to quit because she just couldn't. She didn't think she could do it. And her coach told her, "Look, you're going to have to try this a thousand times before you get it." Um, and in fact, she she couldn't learn it. You know, all at one time. She had to learn one part of the move separately from a different part of the move separately from a different part of the move over the course of months. And then near the end, start to put these moves together. And, of course, at the end, she, she did learn how to do it, and most gymnasts do if they stick around uh, long enough. Um, but, but imagine this, that she literally, for, for an hour or two a day, for over a year, she spent learning this move that literally takes only three seconds to execute uh, on <laughs> yeah. the uneven bars. And it, it, it just took that many tries. And so here she was, a 7- or 8-year-old girl, and she learned at that age the, the value of persistence and grit uh, and some of the things most worthy of being achieved happen because you don't give up. And, you know, I, I just know that with my own kids and probably myself as a kid, we try a new sport or a new a new anything two or three times, and if we're not great at it, we walk away. And just imagine how, how few people would be good at anything if they gave up that early.
0: Yeah. And you know, I think that's happening more and more, though, that kids are giving up, and partly because we keep telling them how great they are and... They don't want to disappoint us by being anything less than great, so they don't try new things right. as much the, as they could. The interesting could. thing
1: about her is she, she went on to do a number of amazing things, and, and, but at several points in her life. In college, it happened again, and then in the workforce, it happened again, that there were skills she needed in school and in, jo- in her job that took many, many repetitive you know, times to get it right. And so some of us don't learn that till we're 40, you know, and she learned it at the age of 8. it would <laughs> be great for most kids
0: to do that early. This whole conversation is kind of reminding me of the dinners we used to have with some old friends of my parents. It was a guy named Michael Shurion who was what he called a literotherapist, using literature to work with his patients as a as a psychotherapist. Fascinating stories a guy would have. Paul Smith is the author of Parenting with a Story, Real-Life Lessons in Character for Parents and Children to Share. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Paul. We'll get some great stories about a lot of other things, hard work and self-confidence and humility and respect for others. Is just There's really a, a tremendous variety here, and, and we can't wait to hear some more. I'm Armand Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Dear John, I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is serious, and I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to when you checked on me? I don't want to leave, but remember, when I quit, you quit. Sincerely, your heart.
2: Listen to your heart. Don't let it quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get yours to a healthy range today. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Paul Smith, the author of Parenting with a Story, Real Life Lessons in Character for Parents and Children to Share. So I want to ask you something before we go on. You had all these people telling you stories. You said you had nearly a 1,000 of them. What was one that stands out as the the one that just completely took you by surprise?
1: Well, I'll tell you the one that made the biggest impact on me personally because okay. it wasn't one that came up in a um, in the interview. Um, it was a story that my, my father told me, and he told me just a year and a half ago. Um, and it was a story about him as a child, and it was something that he'd never told me or any of my siblings before, so it was a complete surprise to me. Uh, but it literally changed the course of my, my life. And I, I was at the point where, I, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I'd, I'd had my first book came out uh, two and a half years ago, and then... Um, I, I was under contract to write the second book, and um, so that takes a lot of time and effort. And, and the speaking engagements that tend to come after the publication of a book was taking up a lot of my time. But I still had this full-time day job, uh, corporate day job, and my wife and kids were probably getting the short end of of my time and attention at that point. And so I was struggling to decide: Do I quit my my corporate job and pursue writing and and speaking as a full-time career? and i just i i was lacking the courage to do that just because you know I was only forty six years old at the time too early for too young to retire and all that kind of stuff and so i asked my father for advice and the the story that he shared with me was that he said when i was five years old i knew exactly what i wanted to do with my life he said i wanted to be a singer you know like frank sinatra or tony bennett you know he's eighty years old so that was his genre and he said in fact the first day of the first grade the teacher asked if any of us had any special talent and he said, um, I, of course, raised my hand immediately and said, I can sing. And, of course, she, she immediately invites him to stand up and sing a song to the class, which he should have known was going to happen. And um, <laughs> so he stands up, and, and he, he said, I belted out my favorite song. And he said, I nailed it. You know, I got all the words and all the melody just right, and I was so proud of myself. And um, he said, something amazing happened. All the other students and the teacher stood up, and they applauded me. And he said, that's when I knew for sure this is what I was destined to do with my life. He he went on to say, unfortunately, that turned out not just to be the first time in my life I ever sang in front of an audience, but it turned out to be the last. He said, that was 75 years ago, son. And not a day goes by that I don't regret that decision. He said, I just – I never had the courage to go through with it. And he said, someday you're going to wake up and you're going to be 80 years old like me, and it's going to be too late to pursue this dream. And you're going to regret it. And he, he, he literally closed out by, by saying, you know, I'd love to see you achieve your dream. But, but that doesn't mean in your lifetime, son. That means in mine. And, I, I mean, you know, tick my dad's 80, and I, you know, that, he just he laid the gauntlet at my feet to, to quit my job and do this professionally. So quite literally two days later I walked into my boss's office, and I resigned from my 2 decades long career to pursue this dream. So that wasn't a story I was expecting, but it absolutely is the most impactful story that I've ever heard in my life.
0: That's really amazing. It's, it it's sounded like from, from reading some of the other stories in there, that your dad was, was quite a character. There was one of uh, him and you and I guess one of your siblings sitting at a restaurant and he's ordering quiche.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was probably my earliest lesson about what it means to be a grown-up, to be to be a man in my case or a, a woman in a, in a girl's case. Um it was it was on what was called Secretary's Day. This is back in the mid '80s, and they still called it Secretary's Day back then. But if you'll recall, that was right after this book had come out, a wildly popular book called Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. And so, even if you hadn't read the book, everybody had heard the title of that book. And so, uh, at lunch that day, uh, that had myself, my father, um, and uh, my, him and his secretary. It was Secretary's Day, and we were all at lunch there. I was there with my boss because I was one of the secretaries, I was only 16 or 17 years old, I was literally a file clerk, um, and we were there to have Secretary's Day lunch. And so the, uh, the waitress comes around to the table and she says, we have two options for lunch today, one is a club sandwich and one is a quiche Lorraine. And like I said, of course, this book had just come out, so all the men at the table are very quickly ordering the club sandwich, including me because, of course, I'm 17, so I'm insecure enough in my masculinity as it is. And the women, most of whom were ordering the quiche, well, it gets around to my dad, and he says, you know, I've never had a quiche before. i tell you what, how about you bring me half a quiche and half a club sandwich? That way, if I don't like the quiche, I still got my half a club sandwich. And the abuse set in immediately. I mean, all the other men at the table just, well, since this is probably a family-friendly program, I'll just say that they were questioning his masculinity in more colorful language than I'd ever heard up to that point in my
0: life, right? Wait, these are and these are spectators in the restaurant, or these are people no, these, sitting these with are you. No,
1: other other men that worked at the same company. Oh my! So uh, basically, all of the the managers of the company went to the same restaurant to take their secretaries for lunch that day, and so we're all at this big table together. So you know, we all know, we all know each other, but it was it was still very um, uh, humiliating for me to watch my father get a, you know verbally abused like this by all the other men at the table, and so after three or four minutes of of uh, this abuse, you know. Thank goodness, I thought, my father finally had had enough, and he called the waitress back over and said, Look, I'm sorry. I've got to change my order. I I ordered the half a club sandwich and the half a quiche, and um, I need you to take back that half a club sandwich, and I need you to bring me the entire quiche. And, I mean, it was silent at the table. I mean, the men's, their jaws just dropped. I mean, here they had thought they had had abused him into submission with all of their, you know, uh, teasing, and in fact, they did, you know, the opposite. He 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 got the best of them. Now, now I, I still don't know if my father likes quiche, but that day <laughs> he ate every bite of that quiche with a smile on his face, and it just, without even meaning to do it, he taught me a lesson about what it meant, what it means to be a, a real man, which is to not care so much what other people think, and and how to stand up to peer pressure. Um, so that's a story that I now can share with my I have two boys at 15 and 10 years of age, and I share that story with them, which teaches them the lesson of. How to stand up to peer pressure, and it doesn't have to be involve eating quiche. It could be with anything. You know, if some kids are making fun of them for not letting their pants hang so far down, you know, their waist that you can see their underwear, which is, you know, unfortunately the the rage these days. You know, they know what to do. What they do is they pull their pants up even higher. You know, they do the opposite of what their tormentor is teasing them about, uh, or, or doing it more instead of doing it less. And eventually, you can see their tormentor would just get exasperated and walk away. You know, that's the way to resolve a situation as opposed to me telling him, you know, if you stand up to a bully, they'll always back down. Or if you stand up to peer pressure, you know, that, that's just, that's not very helpful. But the story yeah. about my dad really helps them figure out a way to deal with the situation.
0: You know, the lessons that come from our dads are, are so interesting. I'm just thinking of one now where my, I had a, when I was young, really probably 10 or so, had a little bit of a, an issue with uh, shoplifting and got caught a couple times and my dad happened to be an attorney working in the the uh, district attorney's office in Alameda County and he'd been telling me don't do that it's a bad thing it's the wrong thing that kind of stuff and then at one point after i got caught he took me down to the jail and cuz he knew all the cops there he had me fingerprinted and put into a cell for probably 10 seconds i mean it was it was not not long but, it was
1: a long ten seconds, though. Wasn't oh it?
0: my God, that was <laughs> that, that was the ten seconds where I decided I never, ever in my life want to come back here again. Yeah, I like and that you know, that's just like no no words. There was no lesson here. I mean, no no overt lesson. He wasn't right. saying I'm going to teach you. This was like right. you know. So you, you realize, oh my, this is what happens to people. Oh boy, yeah. don't want that anymore.
1: I definitely like your dad
0: already. <laughs> He's a good guy. He had some, some other odd punishments and things like that, but we'll save those for another day.
1: I, I trust you got past your shoplifting uh, habit.
0: I did, uh, and now oh, I'm, I'm. it's cars now.
1: <laughs> it's, uh...
0: <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> so w- what's one that you have told your kids with some success?
1: Yeah, so... Um... Well, the truth is I probably told half of these to my kids because they, they ask me for them every night now, which once you start telling stories like this to your kids, they'll, they'll actually ask you to tell them stories. But one of my favorite, that I think is the most effective is um, a, about a young man named Chad who was uh, the captain of his high school basketball team. And uh, one night he had all, over the, all of the other players over at his house for dinner the night before a big game and they're talking about their strategy for the game the next day. But they're teenage boys, so they're also talking about girls. And one of the girls they were talking about was a young woman we'll just call Jenny. Um, and she's a, a very special young lady. She, she was in a wheelchair, and she was blind in one eye and um, had difficulty speaking, so she had to talk with a, one of those computers, synthesized voices oh, like yeah. Stephen Hawking and a number of other very visible disabilities. And so you can imagine they weren't saying very nice things about her. Well, at some point during the evening, Chad's father actually overheard this conversation, and it was his son, the captain of the team, that actually instigated this conversation and what he did about it was just brilliant he, he, he actually showed up at school the next day at lunch unbeknownst to his son walks into the cafeteria where, when they're all eating lunch he goes up to the table and he says son where's the girl and of course Chad immediately knows what he's talking about and he's like oh my gosh dad I'm so sorry for what we said last night but please don't embarrass me in front of my friends here and his dad just repeats it Chad where's the girl so he points over to a lonely table somewhere on the other side of the cafeteria where she's probably eating by herself like she probably does every day. And um, He says, all right, I need you to stand up, and the, you and the rest of the boys here need to follow me over there um, right now. And he coaxes them to do that, and they go sit down. And he just asks Jenny four questions that just com- completely change the way these boys thought about how they should talk about other people. He, he said He asked her, who's your best friend? And she said, my mom, Stacy. And it probably spoke more about her lack of social network at school than it did about her wonderful relationship with her mom, right? And that probably wasn't lost on those boys. Secondly, he said, what does your dad do for a living? She said, I don't know who my father is. That was a sobering answer. The third question was, how long have you been in a wheelchair? And her answer that she types out on this keyboard was, my whole life. And here are these boys that run up and down on a basketball court every day, and now they realize she's never done that and she never is going to do that. But the last one just really took the cake. She, he, he said, what is it you dream of and love to do the most? And her answer was, I love listening to the girls cheer at the boys' basketball games, okay, their basketball games. The very boys who were making fun of her last night, her favorite thing in the world is to listen to the cheerleaders cheer them on. So if there was any shame left you know inside them it was all out at that point. And so of course, they, they very quickly changed their attitude about Jenny and of course, by that time the entire cafeteria is listening to this conversation because it's so unusual to have a father show up unannounced. And anyway, within a week, Jenny was the honorary captain of the cheerleading squad and you know her, her entire social, Uh, life changed after that, you know, because of that, those four questions and that Hmm. one very bold uh, lunchtime, unexpected meeting with Dad. Um, And so when I share that story with my kid or with other kids, you know, they they learn the lesson that, gosh, just getting to, once you know somebody, just a little bit about them personally, it's really hard to make fun of them, you know, before you've walked a mile in their moccasins, so to speak. Um, So so it's very important to, if, if you find yourself, You know, teasing somebody like that's probably because you don't know them very well. Get to know them a little bit and then see if you feel differently about it.
0: Great place to end it. Paul Smith, the author of Parenting with a Story, Real Life Lessons in Character for Parents and Children to Share. Thanks very much, Paul. Great to have you.
1: You're very welcome.